Welcome to Rave Dad's Diary, the show that explores the globalization of electronic dance music from the perspective of a rural Alberta boy turned raver. I'm your host and resident rave dad, Paul Brooks. Rave Dad's Diary broadcasts on CJSW 90.9 FM in Calgary at the University of Calgary campus and community radio station located on Treaty 7 land. I acknowledge the traditional territories of the people of the Treaty 7 region in southern Alberta, which includes the Blackfoot Confederacy, the Siksika, the Pagani, and Kaina First Nations, the Sutina First Nation, and the Stony Nakoda. The city of Calgary is also home to Métis Nation of Alberta, Region 3. Hello! Welcome to Episode 11, the second last episode of Season 1 of Rave Dad's Diary. Today, I chop it up with my friend and Calgary expat, Steph Rushton, a.k.a. the Dangerous Accountant. She's a chartered professional accountant, currently based in Paris... She specializes in working with artists, and she also works in music supervision for television and film, which is something I'm very interested in. You'll hear our conversation in hour two. I'm going to start off the show today with material from the archives. Over the holidays, I logged into my old Dropbox account and found some recordings of the radio show I used to host on 90.9 FM CJSW called What Will the Neighbors Think? We're going to listen to a show from 2012 where I hosted producer, DJ, and Mad Decent affiliate, Boy 8-Bit. Enjoy. FM, CJSW. Good evening. You're listening to What Will the Neighbors Think? Coming at you every single Friday night, 10 to 11 p.m. I had to think about the time. I have two radio shows, and sometimes I mix up their names and their times. We're brought to you every week by the Coup and Meet, 924 17th Avenue Southwest. 
delicious food. I ate a Mediterranean salad, and it was really garlicky and good. So I'm keeping my distance from my my friends. I have a very special guest in tonight, Boy 8-Bit. He's playing tomorrow night at the Hi-Fi Club, and I'm looking so forward to going out and partying tomorrow with my friends. He's going to do a little mix for us and play some of his tracks, let us know what he's up to, so we'll get right into the mix. Stay with us for the whole hour until 11 o'clock and beyond. Friday nights on CJSW 90.9 FM. Here we go, Boy 8-Bit in the mix for 90.9 FM, CJSW, turn it up.
94.9 FM, CJSW. You're listening to What Will the Neighbors Think? And we're in the mix with Boy 8-Bit. This is really exciting, Boy 8-Bit. One of my favorite producers. He's hanging out in Calgary for a few days, actually. And he's playing at the Hi-Fi Club tomorrow. Check it out. With He's playing with Jeremy Glenn and Lauren B. Hello, Boy 8-Bit. Hello. Thank you very much for coming on the show tonight. You just got off a plane not too long ago. Uh, yeah, about three hours ago. Um, a slightly longer journey than I wanted, but it was. It's, yeah, I'm good. I'm here and I'm still awake, so it's all good. You're playing a whole bunch of your original music. What are we listening to? Um, well, we opened with well, the, original, the first track wasn't mine. It was a guy called Zulu, which is a London, a young London guy. Um, and then I just put together. It's just stuff I've been working on in the last couple of weeks. I just wanted to put it together, see what it sounded like. Um, and then a, a whole bunch of stuff I'm into. Like, I just played Paul Wolford, uh, Special Request. And this is uh, the Len Faki edit of DJ Hyperactive. Um, it's all stuff I'm playing and stuff that I'll play tomorrow, I think. That sounds great. What have you been doing for releases this year? What? Uh, where can people get your music? Um, usual places, Beatport, iTunes, uh, for the Boy 8-Bit stuff. I did an EP on Blood Music, Fake Blood's label, uh, called We Move By Night. Done a bunch of remixes as well. Um, and also I've been doing my Roy Apron stuff, which is like a band camp thing where I just... Well, you heard one of them as well. I just played one of those. And, yeah, that's royapron.bandcamp.com, I think, or something like that. Um... You can find out on my Twitter and Facebook. But, yeah, I've been putting that out as well. I've done a couple of releases on that, just self-released. And, yeah, I think this is the busiest year I've ever had for music, really, just putting out a lot of a lot of stuff. That's great. So with the Roy Apron project, people can go to Bandcamp and pay what they want for your EP. Is that correct? Yeah, it's a minimum of one, one British pound, um, basically just to cover my costs i had them mastered properly um so yeah but pay what you want and they're both there's two three track eps they're both for a pound each and i've got a third one coming out and then i'm going to do like an album with a few extra bits and yeah it was just something different just to try it out and see how it works and yeah awesome all right well we'll get back into the mix you're listening to what will the neighbors think on 90.9 fm cjsw Hanging out with Boy 8-Bit. He's playing at the Hi-Fi Club tomorrow night with Jeremy Glenn and Lauren B. It's going to be a sick show. Let's give away some tickets right now. Give me a call in the booth, 403-220-3991. Caller number three will get a pair of guest list spots for tomorrow's show. It's going to be sick. Come get ravey with us. Yeah, back into the mix, Boy 8-Bit. You're listening to Rave Dad's Diary on 90.9 FM CJSW. This segment is a rebroadcast of What Will the Neighbors Think, which originally aired September 7th, 2012. The Hi-Fi Club is now permanently closed. If you're interested in hearing more about the club, listen back to episode 3 of Rave Dad's Diary, where I talk to proprietor Pete Ems and general manager and talent booker Sarmad Rizvi.
congratulations to Joel, who won the tickets. We're going to be giving away some more tickets later on in the show, so stay near your phone.
90.9 FM CJSW. You're listening to What Will the Neighbors Think? And we have Boy 8-Bit in the mix. Thank you very much for joining us tonight. Thank you for having me. So you just finished off with an untold track. Yeah, it's called Motion the Dance. It's on that. It's on the first EP. It's just done like a series of three. Um, we were trying to remember the name. I think it's called Change in Dynamic Environment or something like that on Hemlock. Yeah, and really they, good. they just came out with number three. Yes. On, on Hemlock Recordings. And uh, yeah, it has a really sick track on it uh, called Kane. That's the one, yeah, so, yeah. So, so sticking up with, sticking with the, the kind of post-punk, really gritty sound. Yeah. It's definitely got that 90s um, drum and bass thing going on as well with all the Reese noises, and I just really like it. It's really sparse, and it, I just think it sounds quite fresh. Really so fresh. I, I find that you're drawn to some darker music, or at least when I've seen you play, you kind of uh, delve into dark territory. Well, yeah, I'm known for the melodic thing, and I really like the melodic thing, and I'll always play melodic, but I grew up. I'm a 90s, I'm old, so I grew up in the 90s and like like drum and bass was my first big thing that I obsessed about and obviously a lot of that was very, very dark. So, yeah, I go back to that and recently I have, I've kind of a bit jaded by some of the safe music that's coming out, some of the Deep House. I like it, I've always liked Deep House, but yeah, I just want something a bit edgier and kind of going back to those references and the dark of it is... It's it's fun. I, I like it, and I think it works well at like one thirty with a four four, and yeah, like that untold track. Perfect example, and the Paul Wolford one as well, but still danceable. I've uh, <laughs> on the internet. There's a few pictures of you floating around. Yes, there's been a few floating around since the last like five years. There's the one you know with some mad decent stickers on you. And there's one of you with a, a Black Dahlia oh, yeah. murder t-shirt. Yeah, 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 I love Black Dahlia murder. I um, I went to see them years ago. I think that, well, I haven't listened to them recently, to be honest. But yeah, fantastic. I like metal, though. I grew up in metal. Metal was the first kind of music I got into when I was about 11. And yeah. What kind of bands do you listen to, metal-wise? <sighs> what do I, I don't know. I, to be honest, I... I probably don't give it as much time as I used to. I was listening to a band called Kralis this week. It's like this New York kind of black metal uh, band, which was good. But I listen to a lot of stuff. I like death metal, old death metal, like Morbid Angel, Cryptopsy, uh, a lot of black metal, Swedish death metal, uh, oh, loads, loads of stuff. Like, obviously, At The Gates, Entombed, anything, all that melodic stuff I'm into. Awesome. <laughs> That's great. So we're talking with Boy 8-Bit. He's playing at the Hi-Fi Club tomorrow with Jeremy Glenn and Lauren B. It's going to be a great show. I'm going to be there partying with some of my friends, and I've just really been looking forward to this. And it's a great pleasure to have you hanging out with me tonight. Thank you very much. Thank you for having me. So you can check out Boy 8-Bit. Go to his SoundCloud. He has a moniker, Roy Apron, and you can check him out on Bandcamp. Uh, dot com slash Roy Apron. There's an EP up there. Two. Two EPs. Two EPs. Prolific oh. now. <laughs> what are we listening to right now? We're listening to a track called Acid Jackson by Bodico, which is probably one of my favorite records of the year. Um, it took a while to come out. It kind of surfaced last year, and it's just a really good, groovy, acid kind of 808 track, and I, I love it. All right, let's have a little listen. <laughs> We'll be right back. 
And a shout out to the Hi-Fi Club. Go check out Night Circus tonight. It's the launch of Night Circus. So go see Wax Romeo, Amac, DJ Reese holding it down. It's going to be a great party. Look forward to that series every Friday night at the Hi-Fi Club. Pot to everyone in Calgary. It's Mark Emery, the Prince of Pot, and you're listening to 90.9 FM CJSW in Calgary. FM CJSW. You're listening to What Will the Neighbors Think? Every Friday night, 10 to 11 p.m. Hanging out with Boy 8-Bit tonight. And it's quite a treat. Hello. Hello. Sorry, I was facing the other way. That's all right. That's so all right. you put out uh, an EP uh, a couple months ago on Blood Music, on Fake Blood's record label. I did, yes. And uh, uh, what was that called? It was called We Move By Night. Can EP. you Can you describe your relationship with Mr. Fake Blood? Loving. Close. Um, no, we're really good friends. I met Theo, a.k.a. Fake Blood, um... In 2002, I gave him my first demo CD a long time ago, and I've just got to know him since then in sending him music, and he's always supported my music, and it's kind of apt that, like, 10 years on, he's putting music of mine out. Still. still. Well, he put one out before, but yeah. I remember when when I first heard some of your music, um, I was playing it for some friends that were DJs, and they were trying to tell me that Boy 8-Bit was was fake blood that it was just another <laughs> moniker of, of fake blood and that you didn't uh, you didn't actually exist that there was that very weird time when yeah everybody was everyone else which was did did anybody mistake that in the UK or did... no I think I was reasonably established well I was doing I'd kind of been doing my own thing for a little bit before then so people kind of knew and they knew we were friends I think so that's great so we can pick up your I like the way we're talking about this as if it was like in the newspapers. Like everyone knew. <laughs> they knew. It was in the gossip mags. They knew we were friends. Well, I find there's some, I don't know, there's some parallels between your, your production. Um, okay. I, I, I can't, I'm trying to think of how oh, specifically. Definitely. We definitely have very like common points of reference in terms of music we like. He doesn't like black metal, but like 
there's definitely other things that we both enjoy and we like melodic stuff and musical stuff so yeah i think there's definitely a converge there and I find you often have quite long tracks with a couple of drops in them or or different types of drops like, uh, you know, a drop A and a drop B. Is that something that you strive for in, in your music or is that just the way it turns out? Yeah, I think so. I, I kind of like quite progressive tracks. I like tracks that kind of go along and gradually evolve and I kind of went through a phase of doing a lot of stuff like that and probably initially when I started, again, I was probably had less than of a tension span and I was making tracks as you say that change not not like they're doing now in complexro inverted comma hand gesture um but yeah I don't I, yeah yeah I don't know what I'm talking about now <laughs> <laughs> okay what are people in store for uh, tomorrow night um kind of similar to what you're hearing now really just a mixture of just like dance floor friendly stuff but I don't want to make it too obvious and just fun and good good dancing music great okay what are we listening to right now uh we're listening to uh simi mobile disco uh, a new thing they've just put out i've all, always been a fan i think they're really really good and yeah this is called unfixed i think they just did a new ep of stuff that didn't make their album i think and yeah this appeals to me again it's progressive and melodic and but it's it's pretty solid you're listening to 90.9 FM CJSW, hanging out with Boy 8-Bit on What Will the Neighbors Think. He's playing some tracks, some selections right now. Ten minutes left in the show. Remote Emissions is up next with the Lotus Queen. Stay with CJSW all night long. 90.9 FM. Hi, this is Booker Shade, and you're listening to CJSW 90.9 FM. Thank <laughs> you. 
90.9 FM, CJSW. You're listening to What Will the Neighbors Think? We're hanging out with Boy 8-Bit. He's playing at the Hi-Fi Club tomorrow. Definitely go check out this show. Going to give away some more tickets. So give me a call, 403-220-3991. We'll take caller number four. Call me now. Nobody's calling. Oh, there we go. Congratulations to Mark. He won a pair of guest list spots for the Hi-Fi Club tomorrow. Boy 8-Bit with Jeremy Glenn and Calgary favorite Lauren B. opening up. It's going to be a sick party. Join us. Thinking about you, baby. Can't wait to get my hands on you. Waiting for this moment. I know this what to do. Can't stop this feeling, baby. Gotta get into your groove. Cause now I got you open. All I wanna do is move, 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 move. You're listening to Rave Dad's Diary on 90.9 FM CJSW, broadcasting on Treaty 7 land from the University of Calgary. You just heard a live set from the archives featuring British producer and DJ Boy 8-Bit. I'm extremely lucky to have hosted many producers and DJs I admire on my programs. The show is still on air. You can catch it Friday nights on CJSW with host Carissa Jem.
Empress, Empress, Straight up Empress, Mother of Creation, Foundation. Oh yeah. We're going to keep with the music, but shift gears a little bit. Next, you're going to hear a mix of dubstep classics Max Eulis originally prepared for episode two of Rave Dad's Diary. Because that show was live, I didn't get to play the whole mix, and I talked over a bunch of it. We're going to honor the mix now and listen to it in its entirety. Keep it locked. 90.9 FM, CJSW. She's always in the kitchen. Baby love, she got it going She's always got the flavor Girl, you are a savior Two of you undercover You know that I'll be on my best behavior For Empress, I'm in love with you Nobody else in this world will do Empress, I'm in love with you Nobody else in this world will do Thank you. 
on deep on knees Put these MCs on deep freeze Hit these with these and with these Come like monster, we flip these So please, don't rap with these Fearless, angry, sick MCs Don't like Christine's or Britney's Lala's on Pinky Winkies And this one's strictly for pickies Old school Afro dry white knees Barclays had a fax, we stick these Endless gunshots, we lick these Trick these, CIDs with E Touch mic MCs, jump like fleas Play your haters, get chopped like trees Aware blasts, who aware these are easy Cars and cash and girls and An hour later, I won't be long In the game, that's where I belong Making change, that's what I've been on And if your girl don't come home, then you know what she's been on Cause when I spit, I spit to kill Spit fuck, I set alarms, you know the drill Entire crew armed, you know the drill Bring games, if you wanna play, you know I will Spit rounds and runs lines out of town Cause your clip don't like when they hear the clip Gets nasty, draw tick 
Chick chicks come a Nazi. Click click come a Nazi. Don't put it past me. Yeah, I can be Nazi. Nudge that boy that's trying to walk past me. Blast me, never blast me. Can't class me. With these other MCs, I'm Nazi. Can't eat a bit my way, do it smartly. Soon come, soon ban that whole party. No time for the bad man, shut the dark me. Can't harm me. Can't no one come a classy. to Rave Dad's Diary on 90.9 FM CJSW. We just heard a mix of OG dubstep mixed by Max Ulis. Max made that set for episode 2 of Rave Dad's Diary, and I'm happy I could play it for you in its entirety. Check out Max Ulis on all socials. For the last part of the show, you're going to hear my conversation with Steph Rushton. Steph's talent for finance and her love of music have taken her to some interesting places. She's currently based in Paris, France, where she splits her time between accounting and music supervision in television and film. I think a lot of people, myself included, have this image in their mind about what an accountant looks like and what they do day to day. But I think you really break that mold. How did you get the handle the dangerous accountant? So, I mean, exactly that. Like, I think I, I don't fit into the stereotypical mold of what most people perceive accountants to be. Like, I've taken my professional experience and leveraged it in completely different unrelated industries and kind of created my own direction. And even when I did work at like a big corporate accounting firm, I was always different from the others and kind of doing different things. Um, and during my time there, like I had a unique arrangement where I would still travel a lot. I was volunteering, teaching financial literacy. So I guess I was kind of always pushing the boundaries of what one can do with their accounting skills um, that others weren't really trying. I think, yeah, a lot of people just kind of want that job that pays the bills and that's what they do. But um, there's so many other ways you can use it. I mean, accounting is a fundamental like the building blocks of business so you understand business so you can really leverage that in many ways and I think I've just really explored those ways and so I guess like the dangerous accountant I mean it's yeah I mean I'm just yeah I'm not your typical accountant I'm definitely I like to think one of the uh, more interesting accountants people will meet and I hope that after meeting me people are more delighted by the accounting profession in general well, we're going to talk about some of the ways that you are applying your uh, accounting skills in the music industry, but I wanted to bring it back to Calgary and Calgary's Hi-Fi Club, which has been a touch point for many of the stories told in season one of Rave Dad's Diary. And I think that that's where I first met you or saw you, perhaps, behind the bar. 
Mm-hmm. T- tell me about your relationship with Calgary's <laughs> Hi-Fi Club. Oh my goodness, the Hi-Fi. I mean, I'll always have a huge place in my heart for the Hi-Fi Club. I mean, working there was without a doubt a defining moment in my life. It was really a game changer for me in many ways. And not just because of the incredible people I worked with. You know, there was it was a really family vibes there. Um, unlike a lot of the places I've worked before. But it was my first real exposure to world-class electronic music. I mean, the people that that ran the club, I mean, they were booking acts that no one had maybe heard of or they were up and coming. And then a few years later, it's like, boom, they're huge, you know? So they were bringing in these acts before anyone else knew about them. And, um, you know, that that to this day has affected the music I listen to, my affection for electronic music. I mean, that all started with the Hi-Fi Club. And yeah, to be honest, when I found out it was closing because of the pandemic and all that, I was devastated. You know, it's 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 so sad to see that because it was really such a special place. And I can just feel grateful that I've, um, you know, had a chance to experience some of its magic. Do you have a favorite show or, or hi-fi memory? I mean, I know that there's probably a few that come to mind and a few that are missing, like missing reels. But does something stand out for you? Oh, God, I can I can think of some of my worst memories, which which were mainly to blame on myself um but no i mean oh there were so many good things like i mean a lot of it i remember there were so many late nights after work where everybody would stay and hang out and i mean you know that when you create a situation where your employees actually want to stay after work and hang out and i mean like yeah of course it's a bar there's music and there's alcohol and stuff but i mean i worked at many other clubs and that was not the vibe people were like done work they're going home but at hi-fi it was like everybody wanted to stay and hang out and it was this whole other thing and you could hang out with the dj's that played and it was just that was you know such an incredible experience in itself you know and i mean even the people i worked with there was one guy um sob uh, you know, and he was like the big brother I never had. I remember like anytime like creepy dudes would say stuff, he like always had my back, was saying stuff at them. Like it was, you know, so, so, so funny. Ugh, Esso. Yeah, Esso. Yeah, Shout out to Esso. Yeah, he's he's but... around. I haven't seen Esso in, in the flesh in like a year, but I mean, he's still in Calgary somewhere. I miss yeah, him. T- totally. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, no, all those guys, like Maddie, like it was, it was, I worked with really, really nice people. And I mean, Sarmad was probably one of the best bosses I've ever had. I mean, and he put up with a lot of my stuff. Like anyone who remembers me from the Hi-Fi Club knows that I was a bit of a handful in those days. And uh, Sarmad always had my back and, you know, he was, he was super understanding and stuff. Like, yeah, I just have so much respect for all those guys. And um yeah, it's hard to nail down one particular memory because it was just the whole time, you know, was really good times. You know, I, I think you and I both put ourselves through through school working in clubs. Can can you describe what that was like for you? Ooh, club life. Um, yeah, to be honest, I mean, I mean, other than Hi-Fi Club, I mean, Hi-Fi was a special place, like, the places I worked before, I will not name, um, but they were the more stereotypical kind of like top 40 Calgary clubs. And to be honest, it was 
in hindsight, it was actually quite a dark experience. Like at the time it seemed fun, you're partying, whatever, but there was a lot of kind of shady stuff going on. Women were treated incredibly disrespectfully. Like in a lot of instances, there was actually like borderline prostitution happening. Um, you know, a lot of the places I worked, all the chicks had breast implants, lip injections, dressed like strippers. We had to dance on the bar. And like, I spent my early 20s thinking this is what women are supposed to be like and what will attract men to women. And it was just really twisted and toxic. So, um, yeah, and I mean, don't even get me started on the music that they'd play at these places. It was a nightmare. I mean, uh, <laughs> oh, my goodness. I mean, you can't even call those people DJs that worked at those places. They were just playing top 40 radio jams. Like, you know, it's like, holy moly. And then the hi-fi was the last club I worked at. And I'm so happy for that because it was kind of like my sanctuary. Like it showed me a whole different side of, of the nightlife scene. You know, I didn't have to dress like a stripper anymore. I didn't have to, you know, I could just be myself. I was respected. I was, you know, like it was all about the music. That is the most, probably the most important thing I learned about the hi-fi club is that there's actually places where it's about the vibe, the community, the music. And I mean, that's something you see a lot in Europe, especially now. Um, but yeah, at these other places in Calgary, like it was not about the music. It was about getting, getting a drink and hitting on chicks and seeing what could happen. So, I mean, I guess like I, I you know, I was able to, to make some good money in university, but um, yeah, it was, uh, it was definitely an interesting time of my life working in the club scene, that's for sure. Yeah. And I mean, I've been reflecting a lot, especially through the last year with this uh, weird gift of time that, that I've had. Uh, I've been reflecting. I've been reflecting on many of the same things, um, of course, through through my perspective as, as, as a man working in the clubs. But uh, yeah, you know, I, I, just watching you hustle and grind and go through school uh to do accounting i always just found that to be a really interesting juxtaposition again because mm -hmm. of that like stuffy uh stereotype that i've always had in my head about uh, accountants totally so you left calgary and you went down to san francisco what did you work on down there yeah so i mean like I always wanted to live in California at some point. I originally had thought I was going to go down there and pursue acting, but I ended up going down as an accountant. Um, not quite the same, but um, yeah. So I was working at a big accounting firm in Calgary and they have offices all over the world. So that was kind of my golden ticket because once I got high enough there, I was able to transfer to their San Francisco office. Um, and that's where I stayed for five years. And I mean, yeah, San Francisco was an incredible place to live. I mean, it was, it's kind of like a bubble in the States. And that was another defining period of my life. You know, it opened me up to all kinds of new things. Like, I think that's really when I started understanding what this whole music festival thing was about and what all, you know, and art collectives and designer drugs and, you know, you name it, like it was all in San Francisco. So yeah, that was a pretty incredible experience as well. And you started working on some musical projects around that time. So, yeah, that wasn't until the, the end of 
well, I mean, yeah, like really in earnest, I got into music at the end of my time. I mean, I, I dated someone when I lived in San Francisco and I used to help him throw underground parties, which was super, super cool. Like, because they, him and his friend were super connected. Like one time Diplo came and played this underground party we threw and I'll never forget Diplo for this. Cause he was so just like impressed by the vibe of the party that he didn't even want any money. Like, he's like, yo, I'm just happy to play here. So I got respect for that dude because of that night. But yeah, so I was always kind of like, I kind of got into like the throwing parties and that kind of thing. But in terms of working in music the way I am now, yeah, that didn't happen till the end. I mean, I was I was working a lot at this accounting firm and I had made it to to be like a second year manager. But I mean, I was working like 70 hour work weeks. And I was getting extremely depressed. It was taking a huge toll on my mental and physical health. Like I literally, by the end of my time, thought I was going to die of a heart attack from working so much and not sleeping. Like it was literally crazy. So I knew like before I turned 30, that that was the time I wanted to change things up. And I mean, I've always, I've always loved films and I've discovered so much incredible music through films. And at one point I was like, well, who the fuck, like, who are these people that are getting this music? I mean, of course there's the people, the composers who actually score the bits and pieces, but you know, when you hear pre-recorded music in a film, somebody's responsible for that, you know? So I wanted to figure out what that was all about. And so I did some Googling, figured out that this is actually called being a music supervisor. And I had found these two amazing female music supervisors in San Francisco that I ended up cold calling and they gave me an internship and then I ended up killing it for them. And then they gave me a paid position and here I am now, you know, so that's kind of how like that all worked. It was totally like an, again, an unconventional thing. And just because I was bold enough to, to reach out. It's interesting uh, because I, I was sort of aware of your music supervision uh, pursuits, but when we caught up earlier this week, it you know you you were telling me about the work that you're doing, and I am so interested in music supervision. And so, can you kind of break down what a person in that role in the industry might do? Absolutely. And so, yeah, and I'm glad you asked because. Uh, a lot of people don't know what a music supervisor is. And even like when you watch film and, and TV shows, a lot of the time, the music supervisor, the music supervisor will be kind of hidden in the credits. You know, they're obviously not the first person shown. And depending on the project, I mean, it can take on a range of, of functions. So in some scenarios, the music supervisor is the person who's engaged directly by the um, you know filmmakers and the producers to oversee the entire musical aspect of the project. So they will also hire and work with the composer who's doing stuff, make sure that the composer is creating the right music in line with the director's vision, in budget, all that jazz. But then the music supervisor will also work with the director to go through the script, pick which areas of the film music could be used to highlight um, and then what what possible songs could be used. And then the funnest part, which is actually clearing the rights to use the music. You know, it's all fun and games finding the music. But then the million dollar question is, can you actually use it? So then that's like the real intricacy of the job is is getting the rights, locking in the terms. Um, 
to to actually use the music but then you know there's some projects where the director has a very good idea of the music they want to use like Quentin Tarantino is an excellent example of that and that's why if you watch any of his films like you'll notice it's like bam 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 like huge super famous songs he has a woman that he's worked with on all of his films and so she is more just on the second side you know he gives her a list like I want these songs go and get them you know so it totally depends like the scope of your work as a music supervisor will depend on the you know the project and the director and how involved the director is you know because some directors also have no clue they know the vibe they want to convey but they don't know what options or if they're shooting in another country they don't know what music's hot in Mali right now you know so it's like that's the job of the music supervisor as well so it's cool because it it changes it's dynamic it's not just the same job every project you do it sounds really appealing and glamorous up front what is the admin side of music supervision look like oh wow yeah this this uh this uh one of the most memorable moments actually of the first lockdown we had over here anyway which for us started in march um where i literally thought i lost five years off my life was um we were working on a facebook project for one of their advertisements and they wanted a song and it was actually from one of my friends who's an artist in berlin and her manager had given me all her music and so we pitched it to them and they wanted the song oh but just kidding we actually find out the song was a cover song and the publishing was owned by someone else who signed to Universal Music and so that became a whole thing and we had to reach out to Universal and plead and beg and negotiate and use all of our powers to get Universal to sign off on this and you know so yes the the admin side is probably the most important aspect. I mean, a lot of people have a really good ear for music. A lot of people can find amazing music, but it doesn't matter. None of that matters if you can't use it, you know? So, so that is a huge part of the job as well. Like understanding how to look up who owns the rights to music, who owns the publishing, you know, because you, you wouldn't ever want to propose something to a client and get them excited about a song that they're not going to be able to use, that they're not going to be able to afford, that there's a publisher who doesn't want to allow you to use this song. So that is definitely just as important. You know, you got to you got to check that before you pitch anything to your to your client. So a lot of research, a lot of time up front and also yes. lots of listening to music. Yes, yes. Yeah, definitely. Well, let's talk about the 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 other side of that then um the 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 artist side because i i know you have become passionate about working with artists and supporting artists uh when you are working with artists or you're working on the other side and trying to find music for film um where do you notice there are gaps in in knowledge yeah that's a great question because yeah i'm i'm amazed at how many musicians and even uh, record labels like just don't really know who owns the rights to their music or how it all works and I think as an artist I mean I know that artists get into this because of course they're creative and they want to be creative but you have to look out for yourself too like you need to understand at least a little bit of 
how this works. And this is your music is your most valuable asset if you're an artist. So absolutely, you need to understand who holds the rights. Like, I, I can't tell you how many times I've talked to artists and they've told me like, oh, yeah, you know, like I, I hold all the rights to my music, you know, it's all good to go. And then I'll talk to them a bit more and then they'll be like, oh, yeah, but, you know, I have this publishing agreement with Sony ATV as well. And I'm like, uh, OK, well, that doesn't mean that you own uh, you don't control the rights to your music then, you know, like that means that it, that I have to go to Sony and get Sony to give this the okay. So yeah, and especially like artists around the world, like I mean it's it's one thing for artists in North America. I mean, we have resources. There's there's so many things that, you know, musicians can use to proactively educate themselves. But what about artists in different countries? And that's also where like I I spend a lot of time working with artists from around the world because that's the type of music I'm specialized in finding for clients, but yeah, like, you know, a lot of people don't understand this. They'll get, um, you know, a big contract pushed in their face and they get completely screwed. There's actually a really good um, Netflix film that I can't remember the name right now, but it's about the very famous song, like, a wimboa, a wimboa, like in the jungle, you know? And, and yeah, it's all about how the original composer of that song got completely screwed. And I mean, Disney's made a small fortune off of that song and the original composer hasn't, has barely seen a dollar, you know, just because he didn't understand what was going on and nobody explained it to him. So yeah, this is incredibly, incredibly important for artists to understand. You know, you've got to have your own back. I think, yeah, and especially after a year like 2020, um, when so many of these really important social issues have come uh, uh, to the forefront, um, you know, artists being able to advocate for themselves uh, financially, uh, it, how do you think that's going to fit into uh, moving things forward at this point in time where there seems to be some stagnancy? Well, and that's a good question I mean, or a good point as well, because, yeah, I feel like now it's more important than ever to understand this because in lieu of touring and doing live shows, I mean, artists need to find another way to make money. And for musicians, one of the best ways to do that is to get into synchronization licensing. That's the actual term for when your music is licensed against a visual. Uh, because, yeah, you don't need to be touring or anything. You can just be sitting at home and, and, and do this. But to get into this, to even get your foot into the door... Um, I mean, of course, if you're BFF with, uh, you know, a famous movie producers and stuff and they're knocking on your door asking for your music, that's one thing. But generally, that's not the case. You have to be proactive about it. And if you want to be proactive about it, you got to have your shit together. You can't be approaching people and not know who owns the rights to your music. You know, your reputation's on the line. You want to be professional. You want to know that shit up front and reach out to people like, hey, you know, like, this is my music. I own the master, I own the publishing, da, 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 boom, boom, boom. You know, that you have to, like, I think, and it, and it, another point, actually, I have a very good friend in Cologne who runs a record label and he's also a musician. And we were having a conversation how, I mean, there's so many amazing musicians, but there's a difference between being just an amazing musician and being a professional musician. You know, there's a huge line between those two. And if you want to be a true professional musician, you got to know this shit. You got to know your rights. You have to have it all together. So it's literally like for all the musicians sitting at home and they're not sure what to do with their time. This is where to start. <laughs> 
Totally. I mean, in Canada, we have SOCAN as our performing rights organization. And uh, personally, I find SOCAN uh, difficult for artists to navigate. It's a little Mm -hmm. clunky. But, you know, these performers rights organizations claim that they will represent you internationally. And um, that is indeed what they try that's what they try to do and try to get you paid. Um, so I guess that would be, might be a first stop for uh, some of the Canadian listeners. What other, like, where else should somebody look if they're interested in learning more about synchronizations or even just uh, becoming more confident in understanding their rights uh, as a, a copyright holder? Yes. Okay. So, whew, yeah, now you're getting into the very complex world of of publishing because it's interesting like i mean the whole performance rights organization thing i mean yes it's it's definitely good to register your music with one of them i mean when your music starts making money which if you have it up on spotify or itunes you got to have it registered with a performing rights organization to even hope to collect your royalties but even though these organizations track royalties, they're not necessarily collecting them and remitting them to you. So that's when you need a publishing administrator, which is a whole other bag of worms. And then there's a difference between a publishing administrator and a publisher, which kind of do the same thing. But publishers generally take a percentage of the rights to your music, whereas publishing administrators won't. They'll, ju- they'll usually just charge a fee for their services but they don't actually hold the rights to your music or control how it's used. But so, yeah, so that, I mean, that could be a whole podcast in itself, yeah. <laughs> but, <laughs> but, but, but yeah, but that's what I'm saying. Like it's a, we live in an amazing day and age where the internet is really a powerful tool and there's so much information. If, if people just even Google synchronization licensing, there's going to be so much information to just even, you know, for people to wet their feet. And then, you know, for artists that are working with a manager or a label or a publisher, definitely start with them, sit down with them, go through your contract with them again, make sure you really understand what's in that agreement. If you have it, if you don't already have one, do that before you can even consider signing one. And also look out for anything that asks you to be exclusive, you know? Like same with dating, you're not going to marry someone who's not like incredible and going to like change your life for the better, are you? You know? <laughs> uh, so you're currently in Paris, France. Why? Mm-hmm. Did, why, why did you move? <laughs> so I've always, I mean, I've always wanted to live in Europe and I knew I was always going to come here at, at some point. And I mean... San Francisco is an amazing city, but like I said, the work was intense and it also was getting stagnant. Like San Francisco has changed a lot, even in the time that I lived there. Like, you know, it it became very gentrified. You know, a lot of the creatives were getting pushed out. Every time you go out, you're getting hit on by dudes trying to pick you up with the apps that they're creating. You know, it just wasn't uh, wasn't the vibe anymore. Um and um, I'm I'm lucky in that my dad's British, so I have a British passport. I originally did kind of toy between the idea of London and Paris, but I had come to uh, I had come to Paris many times before I actually moved here. And I was lucky in that I had a really good friend who lived here and just saw the best of the city and and really kind of fell in love with it. 
And I mean, even the musical aspect of Paris has always also appealed to me. I mean, I mean, there's an incredible electronic scene, like the new wave of French electronic is a whole other conversation. I mean, there's really something going on over here with that. But there's also a huge diaspora of artists from Africa, Latin America, Middle East. So, oh, my God, Paul, like we like some of the music over here is incredible, like the fusion between these artists, you know, their cultures, their traditions, and then what they do over here is just something else. Like it really is a vibe. And so, yeah, I just, you know, I knew, I knew it was uh, something I wanted to try out. So has, uh, has it been a positive move for your career and the things that you want to do? Yeah, I definitely think it was one of the best decisions I've made in my life I mean it hasn't always been the the easiest but um I mean that was the whole point is to put myself out of my comfort zone and not to just move somewhere where it's going to be easy and I've made some incredible friends here I've discovered some incredible music here um and again I love how it's so close like you know before the pandemic I was popping over to London every two months I was going to Berlin every two months um, you know, it was just so it's, you know, France, Paris is very central, you know, so it's so easy to get to other parts of Europe. Um, you know, that's been really, really good. I have wondered, though, like, for from a music supervision perspective, um, I mean, because uh, London is probably the biggest hub outside of Hollywood for movies, and I guess Bollywood as well, but they have a that's a whole different thing. But um, so yeah, and there's also you know, there's definitely a lot of music supervisors in London and in the UK as well. Um, it's nice, though, because music supervisors can work, um, work remotely, you can kind of work wherever you are, um, for the most part. But um, yeah, that would be the one thing that like Paris, like the scene here for music supervision, I mean, Paris, France, obviously has its own kind of niche, you know, the the French cinema. Um and and they're huge in the ad space. I mean, anyone who wants to work and do ads and music for ads and, you know, for the big luxury brands, like that's all here. So some of the clients are a bit different. So that's like one of the only things that I'm still trying to kind of figure out how to navigate. But again, that's why I still work with uh, the two ladies in San Francisco, because I get to work on U.S. projects through them. So, yeah. Can you talk about what you're working on currently or what might be coming up in 2021? Yeah, definitely. So, I mean, yeah, for the women in San Francisco, we're working on a ton of projects at any given time. And again, for them, you know, I really love that we focus on international music and bringing this music to the North American audience because there's just so much incredible music being made around the world that most people don't even know about. And especially like films, you know, a lot of, you know, Netflix is really trying to put out a lot more films in foreign languages and based in different places. And a lot of filmmakers are also realizing like, hey, maybe like I want to be geographically accurate with the music I use. Like Blood Diamond is one of the best examples. Like, yes, I will throw them under the bus because they should have known better. They used music from a completely different African country than the one the movie was based in. That is a joke. Like, that is not okay, you know? So that's what I really like about working for the women in San Francisco. And then personally, I also work independently, directly as a music supervisor. So I'm finishing up um, an independent Italian film 
um, and it ironically uh, used all Cuban music. Um, and that was interesting because it was all very famous Cuban music, which is not cheap. That is not cheap to license. And then the upcoming film I'm working on, which has been really interesting because that one I've been involved in since the beginning. And I've been working directly with the filmmaker on the musical choices, which parts the music will play. And that's for an, an Iranian filmmaker. He's based in Berlin. Um, and that's going to be a really beautiful project about um, an immigrant moving to, to Germany for the first time. So that's what's going on from the music supervision perspective. But yeah, then I still have all this other, other stuff that I do as well. Yeah, I guess, you know, we're at a new, a new year, new tax year. You're still working as an accountant? Yes. Yeah, so, yeah, even though I left my uh, fancy corporate uh, accounting job, I do still have my own private practice. And I've been very fortunate in that, uh, you know, a lot of friends or friends of friends hired me. So I've been able to um, keep going that way. And I do really like it. There's something very satisfying about making a balance sheet balance and understanding finances. And again, it's interesting because a lot of my clients are, are music clients. So there's kind of overlap. And like I said, like I'm, I'm very into volunteering. Like before the pandemic, I was going around volunteering my accounting skills and teaching financial literacy, which I think is really important. So yeah, so I'm definitely still doing, doing a lot of accounting. Um, and then I also like one of the the highlights of the pandemic was I, I got this paid writing job at this music publication in Miami called uh, Tigre Sounds. And that's been incredible because, again, like working with them, I've discovered so much amazing music, just, you know, writing about some of the artists they want to feature and stuff. So, yeah, it's been a it's been a busy year. But um, again, like that's that's something else that's interesting like even though last year was a complete shit show it's like you know there still good things still happened you know you just have to be looking and open to them you know Steph it's so great to catch up with you on the radio and I have a million more things that I want to talk to you about but we'll have to catch up again really soon and definitely also I am going to be hitting you up and hiring you for some tax help because uh, <laughs> 2020 was a bit of a mess for me. So <laughs> I think it was for everyone, Paul. <laughs> You'll be hearing from me soon. Uh, yeah, I'm so inspired and excited from this conversation. And uh, I love you and I miss you. And we'll be in touch really soon. Thanks so much, Paul. Love you and miss you too. Bisou, bisou from Paris. You're listening to Rave Dad's Diary on 90.9 FM CJSW, and that was my conversation with Steph Rushton. Follow Steph on Instagram at The Dangerous Accountant. Episode 11 of Rave Dad's Diary is coming to a close. Join me next week for the final episode of Season 1. I talked to DJ and producer Little Snake about what it's like collaborating with electronic music figure Amon Tobin. And Sheena Jardine Olade is back to talk about reimagining nightlife. This show is produced on Treaty 7 land at CJSW 90.9 FM in Calgary, Alberta. Season 1 theme music is Orchestral Lab by Guido, released on Punch Drunk Records. The Rave Dad's Diary logo is by Homesick. Don't forget to check out the Rave Dad's Diary website 
pbrooks.ca slash ravedadsdiary. That's pbrooks.ca slash ravedadsdiary. There you can see photos and links from the shows. And follow the show on Instagram at ravedadsdiary. Stay safe and we'll talk again next week. Thank you.